So today will be my third and last Sunday uh, to finish Genesis chapter 3. And uh, for those of you who are worried about the pace in which we're moving along, how it goes is like Genesis 3, three Sundays, Genesis 4 will take four Sundays, Genesis 5, five Sundays, and so forth. So, um, But anyway, uh, if you like titles for messages, um, today's message title is Grace Wins, okay? And... Uh, Excuse me. Um, So we're going to see how grace wins in this message. Um, Did you ever really want something really, really bad to where you just, um, I mean, you you tried to to force circumstances, you tried to force things to where it's like, I I want this, so I'm going to do whatever I can to make it happen. Um, Just think of a, think of a situation like that. well, uh, has anyone ever heard of something called Boys State? Um, it, it's something that like most states have where they invite, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe today they invite boys and girls, but it used to be called Boys State and they only invited boys. This was many years ago. And, um, and they normally, they take a week during the summer to invite uh, boys between their junior and senior year of high school to go to like basically a camp where they learn about government and things of that nature. Well, so um, <clears throat> it'd just be interesting if any of you have ever had that experience, but uh, the thing about, uh, I grew up in Maryland and um, Maryland Boys State from other people that I've talked to that have ever went to one is unlike any Boys State of uh, any other state in the country. So the Maryland Boys State is run like a Marine boot camp, and it's actually run by Marines. So it, uh, I remember um, I got chosen from my high school to go to this with a couple other friends of mine, and I remember the day that my parents dropped me off. It was, uh, they actually had it at Fort Meade, Maryland. So we actually were gonna stay in barracks, so that even made it more um, military-like. But I, I got off, my parents dropped me off, and as soon as they took off, this Marine sergeant started like yelling in my face and was like, and actually, I, if you played an instrument, they wanted you to bring your instrument, so I played saxophone, so I brought my saxophone, and he's like, get that thing out and start marching in that line with all those guys over there and start playing that song. So, <clears throat> so that, was, uh, that was the beginning, and it was basically nonstop yelling uh, for a solid week. And, uh, and that was, I mean, it was, it was literally like boot camp. And it was, it was scary and um, uh, it was intimidating. Uh, you know, the next morning they woke us up at like 4.30 in the morning. No one was expecting that. They came in, they were just turning over our beds. And then they were like, get, pick them up and make them. And then they'd come in and turn them over again. And so anyway, I mean, at the beginning of the week, everyone just hated these guys. It just, I mean, just who do these guys think they are? You know, we hate these guys. <clears throat> well, you know, I don't know how the Marines do it, but they are like psychological uh, experts at knowing how to like win you over, okay? So, um, and this, it only took one week to do this, right? So somehow, through the course of that week, um, they completely brainwashed me from, from hating them 
to where by the end of the week, um, you just kind of like grew prouder and prouder of, of them. And then by the end of the week, it was about, <clears throat> I think the graduation was Saturday morning and your parents were able to come in the big auditorium. And uh, like on Thursday, they, uh, they said, oh, the Marine guys, they got called away to an assignment and they're not gonna be able to be here for the graduation. And it just kind of made your heart sink because you were like, oh, I want my parents to see these guys. These guys are so cool and, and now they're not gonna be able to be here and it's so sad. You know, and then again, their psychological tricks. They Saturday morning, you know, they're having the ceremony, and then they're like, "Oh, interruption time! Wait a minute, everyone stop!" And then turn to the back of the auditorium, and it's like a wedding. And then here come the Marines, and they're all in their dress blues, and they come marching down the center aisle, and everyone stands up, and and it just made you feel so proud inside. And uh, <clears throat> well, anyway, the moral of that story is. Um, when I got in the car to go home, I told my parents, I said, I want to join the Marines. <laughs> and, um, and they were like, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, obviously, they had aspirations for me to go to college and things of that nature. So <clears throat> it took um, several weeks of back and forth. And eventually, they they kind of convinced me that like, hey, well, how about you go to like a, a military academy, okay? I mean, then you can still get the military experience, but it's, it's, you'll still get college in too. So they kind of had me convinced like, okay, don't join the Marines, but let's try to get into the Naval Academy since I lived in Maryland and the Naval Academy was right there in Annapolis. So, well, we lived in like Podunk, Maryland, basically, and um, small, town, small county, and normally you need like, you need some strings to get in. Our state representative, I wrote a letter to our state representative, he had no clout at all, and so I didn't get in. So then I was like, okay, why don't you try the U.S. Military Academy, so West Point. So I tried that, and I actually had a little bit better chance. They even came to my house, and they interviewed me. Um, but what they said was, your SAT score, on the East Coast you take SAT, not ACT, your SAT score is, um, it's gotta just get a little bit higher. You know, you're, you're not there. And uh, so I took the SAT, ended up taking it about four times to try to get it to what they needed, and I never did. So, so that didn't pan out either. So, <clears throat> so finally, I was resolved to going to a college. I ended up going to Clemson. And uh, the last resort was to join their ROTC program. So I did that. And, you know, that, it, it is, you know, it's ROTC. It's not the same thing. You get to do some repelling. You get to shoot some M16s. Um, and that's about it. I mean, it, it was kind of fun, but it, you, didn't, you didn't have the same experience, the same camaraderie and, the, and, and, and what I was looking for. And then by the time I kind of entered the party culture, all that fell by the wayside. And I just ended up being a lost, unsaved kid who after his freshman year, you know, was about to flunk out with a, with a D average. So, <clears throat> but I will tell you it was a D plus, okay? <laughs> It was a 1.9, okay? So, um, 
But God had me right where he wanted me. Okay, that's the moral of that story, and I'll finish it later. Um, and I didn't know him at the time, um, but that's a situation where I really wanted something really badly, tried to make it happen, but um, the circumstances turned out to where God redirected things, and he had me right where he wanted me. So how does that fit into today's message? We'll, we'll see at the end, okay? Um, but the primary question for us all today is, where is God's grace in this message? Um, so we're going to see a lot of different things going on here, and it's kind of like that, uh, those seek and find books where you got to like find the thing in the, in the busy picture. Uh, we got to try to find God's grace in, in this message this morning, in these words of Scripture this morning, that you would think like it's very hard to find God's grace. He's going to lay out judgments and declarations on the serpent, on the man and the woman, and you might be like, where's the grace in that? Um, looks like a pretty grim picture. But we're going to look for God's grace in these situations this morning. So just to refresh from a few weeks ago, okay, <clears throat> as, you, as you know, um, the serpent whom we identified as Satan or, or, or this uh, animal being used by Satan, he deceived the woman to disobey God's command to uh, eat from the fruit from a tree that the man and the woman were commanded not to eat from. And uh, then she gave some to her husband. And uh, as we know from the verse in Timothy in the New Testament, that uh, Adam, uh, with full knowledge of what he was doing, he was not deceived. He ate from the fruit also. Um, and why is this passage for all of us this morning? Because we've all ate from the fruit. Am I right? And um, so we then saw that the consequences had an, an immediate impact. And that one of the things was that this couple that was living in perfect integrity, um, they immediately, uh, God caused them to start hiding from each other. They were hiding from God. They were trying to cover their shame and their guilt. And, um, and just keep in mind, everyone, even especially all you young people in here as well, that when sin is brought into a relationship, it will always drive a wedge in that relationship. And, um, and we'll see later on how how Satan will disguise sin and temptation in beautiful packages. He doesn't just present it as some ugly picture, okay? But it will always drive a wedge in a relationship. And then we saw that God sought the man and the woman out by asking them some questions to draw them out. He started to become their redeemer. He started to become their shepherd. Um, but as sin had already affected them, they first deflected, and then they blame shifted, and then finally they confessed, although their confession was kind of weak, um, as, we, as we discussed. And thus began man's new normal. We sin, and then we feel shame and guilt, and when God comes to seek us out, we run and hide from him instead of to him. But the rest of redemption is God reaching into our hiding and pulling us out to rescue us, and this is why we have hope. And so here is where we start this morning when God is now going to level some judgments and declarations to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. So open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 3, and we'll read from uh, verse 14 to the end. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <clears throat> <clears throat> I want us to notice certain things from, from this passage. We're going to go through, we're going to focus on the serpent, the woman, and then the man, okay? Um, notice that God does not ask the serpent any questions. God is not trying to draw out the serpent. God is not trying to shepherd the serpent like he did the man and the woman. With the man and the woman, he was asking them questions to draw them out. He was he was acting like a shepherd to them, but he's not doing that with a serpent. Um, he's not allowing the serpent to speak. Um, God knows that he's speaking directly to Satan here. Notice that God first reiterates the crime with, because you have done this. And you might say, done what? Well, we talked about last week how... Um, uh, how Jesus said in the New Testament that if, if uh, someone tempts one of these little ones, it'd be better that a millstone be hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the deep ocean. Um, so in a nutshell, the serpent deceived the woman. But as we brought out, Satan through the serpent also impugned God's word and God's character and tempted the woman utilizing deception. So these are things that the serpent did and, um, and God is just re reiterating this because you have done this to ensure that Satan um, understands the uh, accountability of, of what the crime was. Um, and then God says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Now, what does that echo, right? In, in 3.1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. 
So it kind of has that same echoing. The, 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 the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, and now the serpent will be cursed more than any beast of the field. And, um, uh, and, and we're going to notice here that the serpent is the only one who is cursed. Um, God doesn't curse the man. God doesn't curse the woman. But God only curses the serpent. Now, we talked about last week, too, or a couple weeks ago, that being cursed has a sense of alienation. Um, it has a sense of banishment from the place of blessing. Um, and then he says, on your belly you shall go. And um, um, you can read different commentaries about what different people say, but this is just my personal take on this. Um, when he says, on your belly you shall go, uh, that implies to me at least that this serpent had other means of getting around prior to this curse. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, we can be dogmatic on that, but that's my understanding of it. Um, then he says, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Um, of course, that does not refer to diet, but rather utter humiliation. You'll see this phrase used in other places in the Bible about um, eating the dust, and it, it refers to humiliation. Um, it's interesting, but that's even a phrase we use today, right? Another one bites the dust. Or you might, uh, maybe in elementary school, if you were faster than the kid next to you, you would say, eat my dust, right? So uh, I could never claim that because I was not very fast. <laughs> so um, maybe I've had that said to me, right, instead of the other way around. Um, another thing I wanted us to notice here is this word, a key word in this judgment is this word enmity. Okay, so I'm reading this from um, the ESV, which I think came out in about 2000, early 2000s. And so you think like, well, in the early 2000s, why are they using a word like enmity, right? So in the course of your guys' daily lives this week, did anyone use the word enmity? Like, like, did anyone, maybe you came home from work and your wives cooked you a nice dinner and you said, dear, I have enmity for these Brussels sprouts. Um, that might be an example of where you could use it, right? Um, so, but probably not. It's not a word that's common to us, and yet the translators they decided to use this word even in the early 2000s. And the reason for that is because they didn't use a word like hatred or dislike or disgust um, because enmity is a very strong word. It, it's, it's really, think about hatred times 10, okay, or maybe times 100. It means a violent hatred or like a hatred that just unhinges a person into a rage. Um, it, it's, um, it's way beyond hatred, okay? Um, and then I want us to notice <clears throat> who initiated this enmity. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, it's God himself who initiated this holy war at this point in time uh, between the woman and the serpent. So you had 
the woman and the serpent, in a sense, um, were together against the Creator in... in um, not that the woman was forming an alliance with the serpent, but the serpent was getting her on his side to do something against the creator. And now God himself is saying like, there will be enmity between you two for all time. For, the, for, for There will now forever be fighting uh, between you two. Um, now, today... Uh, we live in a time, you know, how, how does this apply to today? Uh, we live in a time when, you know, we almost dare never uh, say a word that would offend someone. I mean, uh, we just had the issue this week about just a flag, you know, offending someone. And it's like if I, if I told someone that cooler offended me, then all of a sudden you could make a big stink about a cooler offending someone. But it's almost like you can't open your mouth and talk anymore. But, um, and so it's common among religious people even these days to say that all people are children of God. And if you would ever dare say, well, that's not exactly true, then, you know, that's going to offend people, okay? But um, I'm going to read to you what Jesus said, and he was speaking to religious people when he said this, right? In John 8, 44, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, Jesus is speaking about people who did not believe in him. They did not believe in the truth and they did not believe in him and he categorized them as children of the devil. So the fact is, the truth is that there are two categories of people in this world. There are either children of God or children of the devil, and there's a holy war that's raging between the two, um, and especially in the heavenly places, as Paul would say. Um, uh, we know that when Jesus walked the earth, that he didn't come to just wage a, a war with sinners and with children of the devil, uh, but he, um, we see from his example how he uh, reached out to children of the devil uh, uh, in, in meeting needs to share the good news with them, okay? <clears throat> but <clears throat> there is definitely a holy war going on in the heavenly places that, um, that is going on for the hearts and souls of, of people, okay? And... Um, I, as I was just, it just stuck out to me this week, this, when it said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It just, I don't know why, it just kind of was like, wow, God, you're the one who started this. You know, I mean, obviously Adam and Eve sinned, but you created this holy war and that I'm in. And I confess that this is a fact that I need to be more aware of. I think we as a people of God need to be more aware of, but especially in this country where um, it's so easy to be lulled to sleep as if we were living in a time of peace, um, that we can be totally oblivious to this holy war that God has told us that we're in. And um, so I have in the A&I time 
you know, that we can discuss? What are ways that we can become more aware of the fact that we're in a holy war? And, um, and one thought I have just is, is I think of all the verses on prayer. Uh, oftentimes when you read verses on prayer, um, they'll be connected with be alert, right? Um, or oftentimes verses on prayer are connected with um, spiritual warfare. Um, so the New Testament writers clearly understood this, and, and perhaps through prayer we can, um, if we have active prayer lives, we can stay in tune to the fact that we are in this holy war. Um, so even as we pray for um, unbelievers, uh, since, like I said, that, that battle is going on uh, in the heavenly places. So we see that there will be a continuing hostility between the offspring of these two groups of people. But remember the title of the message, Grace Wins. So in the end, God gives the promise that he shall bruise your head, that is, of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel, that is, the offspring of the woman. I don't think Satan had any idea of how God's grace would enter the picture here because evil does not typically comprehend grace. Um, it normally is just totally taken by surprise by grace. It does not anticipate mercy and grace. But right here, God is promising that this struggle will have a finality to it. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we see an unfolding of this promise. And... Um, so we know that uh, Satan is not omniscient like God. And so um, at this point, Satan is probably just sitting there thinking, I need to watch my back at all times. I don't know when this is going to happen. Um, what's interesting is when Moses wrote this, I mean, we, we have the rest of the story, right? We have the subsequent revelation that Moses did not have when he wrote this. So I'm not, I'm not even sure if he would have known this to be a messianic prediction, but of course God did. Um, and, um, and Satan did not know when this blow would come. So we see how throughout the history of Israel, Satan tried to wipe out the messianic line. Um, there, was, there was famine. There was famine when... Uh, Jacob and his brothers were living um, in the land of Canaan. And, um, and how did God prevent them from just dying off? You know, he, he prevented that by happening by a means that you would not expect, by having Joseph be sold to slavery and go to Egypt and then get thrown in prison and then, you know, rise to a position where he would, in essence, in the end, save all the people, you know, by, by storing food, okay? So, um, and then uh, there was Haman's plot to kill all the Jews, right? But God used Esther to, to, to save them. He had Esther be in that position at the right time to save them. And then there was Herod who tried to kill uh, the Messiah by killing the male children in Bethlehem, um, Satan even used one of Jesus' best friends to turn him away from his mission in Peter, right? And, and, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. These are just some of the events Satan was behind as a ruler of this world and trying to cut off 
this offspring that would eventually deal a final blow to his head. But in the end, Jesus bore on his back the, cru- the bruising that we deserved. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the devil's head was crushed. Um, but just remember last week or two weeks ago, um, what happens when you, when, you, when you cut off a snake's head, right? It still, it still wriggles around for a while, right? I mean, it's very eerie, but that's the truth of it. I mean, that snake is still like moving around. And so even though Satan is a headless enemy and he has no power against us, he's still wriggling around and he still lies and deceives, but he has no power. He's got no, he's got no head and the head is where the fangs are with the poison. And uh, so, so grace wins. Um, and that's the point of that part there with the serpent. So the next in line God addresses is the woman, all right? So I just want us to take a moment to put ourselves in Eve's shoes here, okay? So she's, she's sitting here listening to everything that God is having this dialogue and pronouncing this judgment on the serpent, okay? And um, <clears throat> what would be going through her mind at this moment? He just cursed the serpent. Um, what mental state would be <clears throat> would you be in at this point? Um, you just sinned, and the punishment for that sin was death. But what you just heard come out of God's mouth is that someone from your offspring would crush the serpent's head. So you might be thinking, I'm a little bit confused because I. I don't know where God is going with this, you know. Um, What does this mean for me? Well, it means that she would have to live on for a while in order to have offspring. Um, Could it be that God's grace would still allow her to fulfill his promise to be fruitful and multiply? Well, it does. It does. So God's grace is going to, even though there's going to be consequences here, God's grace is going to have the victory um, in this consequence. Um, And I want us to just take some sidebars throughout the message here and and look at some little applications for ourselves. Um, If we're going to be like God, um, we need to see what God is doing here, right? Um, He's going to pronounce some declarations against Eve. He's going to pronounce some declarations against Adam. But... What God is doing is he's moving towards um, Adam and Eve, who are broken people, and he's moving towards them with a heart to redeem them, not a heart to condemn them. And it's an evil person who moves toward a broken person and tries to break them further. But it's the heart of God to move towards sinners and restore them. And this is what we see God doing right here. And... um, I was just, I was talking with Troy about this this morning, but oftentimes my, what I'll do a lot of times if I just, you know, have five minutes uh, to take a breather um, on my phone, there's like three things I do. I go to tigernet.com, catch up on the Clemson news, clemsoninsider.com, more Clemson news, and then I go to foxnews.com. Well, the problem is, and I, I just started thinking this just as preparing for this message, is um, 
when I read news, it just in general works me up. And, and um, it doesn't really cause me to have a heart that wants to move towards sinners with a heart to redeem. It generally tends to have the opposite effect on me. And um, so I, I was reading um, some of the early gospels this week and noticed how, how many times it, it just said Jesus healed all the people. And um, really, I mean, it's not like we're going to walk around and we're going to heal all the people. Um, but uh, the takeaway is that really what Jesus was doing is he was meeting the needs of the people that were around him. He was loving them. He was serving them. He was meeting their needs. And, um, and in order to do that, you, he had a heart to redeem them. He had a heart to serve them. He had a heart to love them. And if um, I, I guess what I'm saying is I need to discard things that take my heart away from desiring to love and serve people. And, and I'm just saying that, like, oftentimes I'll read these stories and I'll just really have a heart to want to condemn people not to love and serve and redeem them. And so if I can't handle that, then I need to discard that. Um, so just, again, in the A&I time, I have a question about what can we be doing to to um, encourage our hearts to have that kind of heart that God has towards people. So, how will grace win in the declarations God has for the woman? Okay, so we'll just read this one verse. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So let's look at these consequences. The first consequence, multiplied pain and childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. It's interesting to note that God uses the same grammatical structure here as he did when he said in the original language, if you eat from the tree, how it's structured in the Hebrew is, dying you shall surely die. And so right here, how it's structured in the Hebrew is, multiplying, I will surely multiply your pain. Um, and I want to discuss the scope of a woman's pain. Um, actually, the, the word here about where the pain is, it talks about the pain is in conception. Well, there's really not pain per se in, in conception, but I, I don't believe that what this is talking about is isolated to the del delivery room, although, of, of course, there's pain in the delivery room, right? But the judgment for the man would be that he would experience painful toil in providing sustenance all the days of his life. And it's the same word for pain that is used here for the woman. It's this um, idea of painful labor or toil. And for the man, that painful toil is going to be over his entire life. And um, I would just submit that there is painful toil with respect to all that goes into the process of having children. Um, not just the delivery room experience. Um, and I think that most of you women would agree, but it starts with the periodic pain that women experience that enables their pregnancy to begin with. Um, and then there's the pains of pregnancy itself. There's the morning sickness. Um, there's the aches and pains of 
you know, you're getting into that eighth and ninth month. There's the pains of childbirth itself, of course. Um, but then what about the pains that go along with post-childbirth? What about the postpartum uh, partum implications? And then what about those wearying infant years? Um, and then what about those toddler years when you're running around the house trying to prevent death at every turn? Fingers in sockets and um, running, jumping off balconies. And then what about the worries and fears and anxieties you experience as your children grow all the way up until either you die or they precede you in death? So that sounds like I've painted a grim picture of um, painful toil in the process of having children. Um, and you might ask the question, where is God's grace in all of this? Where is his grace that is bound up in these consequences? Well, first of all, um, a few weeks ago, um, my daughter-in-law had um, little baby Henry, and, um, and Henry's daddy took a picture of Henry right after he was born, and, and Henry was just laid up right there by um, the mother's head. And, uh, and then he shared that picture, and Lisa then um, texted me that picture, and she put the words, some, something to the effect, I think it was like exhausted delight. It looks like a look of exhausted delight. And so I think those words just describe this, it almost just, it, it, it's, it shows the painful toil and the grace right there side by side, right? Um, there was tremendous toil to get this grace, this gift. Um, so the reward was great, but there was tremendous toil to go through to get it. No pain, no gain is what uh, the phrase is that we, we have. So God, in this consequence, is ensuring the woman that even though you messed up, you will fulfill your purpose in being fruitful and multiplying. I mean, so, so she might have, Eve might have been thinking, okay, well, you didn't curse me. You cursed the serpent. I'm going to have pain, but you originally said to me, be fruitful and multiply, and that's still going to happen. I'm still going to be able to fulfill that purpose. And so that's where the grace is. She will still be able to fulfill that purpose. And despite the painful toil that will be involved in having children, another grace is that um, God has set it up to where despite the fact that her sin has now put a chasm between her and God, he set it up to where the consequences will pave a way back to him. Um, she will run to him in order to have the strength and the grace to fulfill that purpose. Um, just like the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. Um, in the same way, these consequences will cause her to need God, to call out to him, to cry out to him for help. And I was just thinking, I mean, I think even probably unbelievers really, and it, it, I'm not saying that this is um, perfectly honest, but even an unbelieving woman that is going through the pain of childbirth is probably, oh God, oh God, you know, um, in a sense crying out to God uh, for help. I mean, um, and, and then, like I said, as it deals with 
all the years of, of that child growing up. I mean, think about, I mean, uh, all women, you know, your child is, it's after midnight. They were supposed to be home by midnight, and you're wondering, where are they? Are you sleeping comfortably, or are you praying? Are you calling out to God? Are you worried, you know, and anxious? Um, so an application here is that is important for us to see is that in this consequence that God is showing us is that redemption has a cost. Um, redemption is not free, and it would be through the pain of childbearing that the Redeemer would come into this world to crush the serpent's head. And trust me, that mother Mary, she experienced pain at childbirth. Um, think about it when the child was, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe six years old, right? They went to the temple, they left. They were like a day's journey away. Where's Jesus? And they had to run back to the temple to find him. I mean, when we've lost kids just like in Walmart for 30 seconds, you know what that feeling feels like. It's just, I mean, it's terrible. Can you imagine what Mary was feeling having been a day away from Jerusalem and, um, and realizing that Jesus wasn't with them? That would be terrifying. I bet she was terrified the whole time trying to get back. Um, and then she experienced pain watching her son die on the cross. So it says there's another consequence here for the woman. Um, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So I'm not going to spend too much time here because there's so many interpretations of this verse. It would probably take the next, the rest of the year to, to go over them all. Okay. Um, but I'm just going to share... Um, Two, uh, so one of the more common interpretations, it uses a cross-reference from Song of Solomon, um, which goes like this, even though the childbearing process will be painful, you will desire the intimacy that produces children. And I think you can understand that one. Um, but one that is also common, um, that probably I you know, tend to agree with more maybe, is because Moses uses the same word, the same phraseology, just not many verses later in uh, Genesis 4. Uh, here uh, in 4, 7, he says, if you do well, will you not be, be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And it's the same word for desire, um, and if you go with this interpretation and use of the word, the idea of the verse would be that the woman will have a desire for independence, and that desire for independence would be contrasted with the man's desire to rule over her. Um, so the bottom line of that really is this. The marriage relationship will be strained because there will be a power struggle within the home. And so that is the consequence in my understanding, that is coming out from this declaration of God. Um, but what is the grace in this consequence, right? Um, now we, of course, in hindsight still, we have the New Testament where 
we have instruction for how to overcome that power struggle, right? We have the, we have the New Testament teaching to tell the husband how he can be like Jesus to overcome that struggle and the woman to how to be like Jesus to overcome that struggle. But what is the grace here for these two in this? Um, well, for Eve to be a redeeming wife and mother and for Adam to be a loving leader, they both had to be clothed in the innocence of another so that when they looked at each other, they would not hold grudges against each other but they would look at each other in their new coverings and see each other through the lens of God covering their guilt and shame. Really, that could apply to us today as well. If we would look at our spouses, right, as someone who's covered in the blood of Christ, um, it would be hard to hold grudges. Um, well, actually, actually, that goes back to the marriage conference we had um, last year, that was really the, the point of, um, of um, I forgot the guy's name now, <laughs> the, that we were watching that did the marriage conference was that we're sinners, okay? A sinner married a sinner. And so if you go into the marriage with that understanding, you need to, under, you need to see your, your spouse as one who's been covered by the blood and, um, and see them through that lens. And, uh, and that's what I'm trying to say here. That, that's where the grace is um, in this consequence. Um, so uh, an, an analogy of this uh, might be, um, uh, I heard this this week, so I'm going to share it. <clears throat> and I thought it was a neat analogy. But um, like a bicycle, okay? A bicycle, you have a sprocket and a chain, Right? And uh, the sprocket and the chain, it needs to have a, a tension to it, a balanced tension. If, the, if, if there's not any tension there, then the chain's just going to come loose from the sprocket. So if you don't have the sprocket or the chain, that bicycle's not. You could be pedaling and pedaling, but it's not going to move forward. And um, whatever in that analogy, whichever one's the sprocket, whichever one's the chain, the man or the wife doesn't matter. The point is, if the chain falls off the sprocket and says, well, forget it, sprocket, I don't need you. I'm just going to move forward. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't move forward. You need the sprocket. Same with the chain. I mean, you need the chain. They both have to work together, and they have to have that the, just the right amount of tension for it to work. Um, so there's a level of tension to make it work right. And in the same way, Adam and Eve we're only going to move forward after God clothed them, and they needed to see each other through the lens of God um, clothing them properly. So finally, God turns to the man. Okay, so what does God do first? Just like he did with the serpent, God recounts his sin, and he starts out with because. He did this with the serpent. He didn't do this with Eve, but he did it with the serpent because you have done this. So here he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Um, I think God does this um, because he wants, uh, he's, Adam needs to be held accountable for the sin. You know, he, he's, he's recounting the sin to Adam because you have done this. Um, 
And just so we understand the interpretation of this, because I don't want anyone to think like, oh, well, what do we, you know, we shouldn't listen to our wives. No, we should listen to our wives. But this, it really, um, if you read uh, what this is about, this is like when, when uh, Sarah told Abraham to go have a child with Hagar and said, Abraham, listen to the voice of, of Sarah. Um, it really has to do with like, almost like listening to obey. Like, hey, I'm going to, uh, whatever you say, I'm going to do. And um, so really it's almost more like because you obeyed the voice of your wife, okay? Not just listening, but because you listened to obey the voice of your wife. Um, and, and, and what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that um, he obeyed the word of another over the word of God. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it was his wife or if it was an angel of God or whether whatever it was. I mean, we should not obey any word of someone over the word of God. <clears throat> and keep in mind, again, as I brought this out at the beginning, this temptation came to Adam in the form of his beautiful wife, not some, some ug ugly package. Um, but I think an application for us men is if we're going to lead our families, we really must know God's word. So whatever you do, men, find a way to get God's word in you. Um, I, I, again, this week I was, came across or heard the, the verse, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I mean, just, if you just think about what Jesus is saying there, I mean, you eat bread for daily sustenance, and Jesus is saying, we need to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we live in a day and age where we have access to the word of God through reading, through listening, through getting the Bible read to us on our phones, through in, in all these different means where we can get the word of God into our lives. And we need to do that, men, um, if we're going to lead our families properly so that when something comes against us, even if our beautiful wife says, we need to do this, and we're like, well, no, we're not going to do that because God says we need to do this, okay? Um, but if we don't know the word of God, man, then um, we're going to make the same mistakes that, that Adam made here. Um, <clears throat> so now I want us to just notice here, before God uses the word cursed with Adam, look at, uh, actually in this whole passage here, the word you is used about 12 times. I shouldn't say about because I counted 12 times, okay? But before the word cursed, it's three times, okay? Um, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Um, God is making the point that Adam's personal responsibility in the sin is crystal clear. Um, so now put yourself in Adam's shoes just right here. He just heard God recount the serpent's sin, started with because you did this. He just heard God curse the serpent. He just heard God not recount his bride's sins. And now he is telling Adam, 
you, you, you. And then he hears the word cursed. And at this point, I think Adam would be thinking, I'm, I'm done. Um, it's over for me. But then he, here's what God says. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. You, 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 cursed is the ground because of you. And it's like God points to the ground. He does not point at Adam to curse Adam. He, he, he curses the ground. And I don't think Adam saw that coming. I think Adam was fully expecting that he was in for a curse. Um, so what is the grace in the ground being cursed? Um, well, a man named Henry Morris makes the point that how quickly would chaos run rampant if sinners didn't have to use a majority of their time to work and sweat to eat? In other words, bored sinners are much more prone to wreaking havoc. Um, and I think that's true. I think I, I see, we see that in our lives. I think we see it in the lives just in general, that uh, when there's boredom run rampant, then sin runs rampant, okay? And then there's just the sheer fact that we are now dependent on God for our daily bread. God is now requiring that we have to depend on him. Um, so what other promise is God keeping here? Um, in the rest of this verse, he says, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taking. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God promises to him three times, you shall eat, you shall eat, you shall eat. And um, he just assures Adam that he would live on to just like he assured the woman that you're going to live on to fulfill your purpose to be fruitful and multiply. He assures Adam, what was the purpose he gave to Adam? To work and to keep the ground. So he assures Adam by saying, you shall eat three times that you're going to be able to fulfill your purpose, Adam, to work and keep the ground. But of course, toil will now become a part of it. Um, it would lie behind the preparation of every meal as a reminder of the fall, but you shall eat, okay? You will be able to live on and fulfill your purpose. Um, now, I want to remind us all, again, um, as I, Eric said um, early on, in going through Genesis 2, that work itself is not a punishment for sin. God instituted work before the fall, but how it's different now is God created, uh, it, it now work has the hardship and frustration that attended work after the fall that came with the curse. Um, you'll see this term by the sweat of your face. And, and this term has the idea of working so hard that sweat is just beating up on your forehead and rolling off your nose and getting in your eyes and all that. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, have you guys... Does anyone work outside? I mean, it actually, I, I used to have a job where <clears throat> I worked outside. When I first moved to Missouri, um, I had a job that was like in fire protection, and I had to go to um, 
power plants every month. I mean, power plants, it's, it's already, say it's already like 90-something degrees, and then you're in a power plant that has got boilers and everything else in it, so it's now you're probably over, way, well over 100 degrees, you know, in this power plant. And I remember, actually this was the hardest toil, labor of my life. Um, one night I was working, and it was like on a Sunday night. I mean, it, it, I didn't even want to be there. I can't remember. It was probably 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday night. I'm sitting there, first of all, just like, why am I here? Sunday night even, 10 o'clock. And it's just hot as ever. And I'm trying to change this angle valve for a um, fire hose. And I got a pipe wrench and, I mean, trying to get it loose. And I, it's just not breaking loose. And, and the, the sweat is just, you know, you know how it just gets in your eyes. And you're just like, keep trying to do this. And you're just, it's getting you so frustrated. And, I mean, I just... I was getting so angry and just like, I was hitting that pipe wrench against the wall. I mean, I just was, um, I, I literally was. Um, so um, that's, that's what this is talking about, okay? Sweat of your face, toilsome labor with the idea of frustration, okay? Um, so, uh, but we talked about the grace of God saying, you shall eat. Guess what? I still got paid for that job. Um, and it put food on the table. So there was the grace in that, right? Um, but there's also a future grace that God knew that we in our day have access to, and that's in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So our Lord Jesus would ultimately gain victory through painful toil. And all the things we see in this passage, um, painful toil, sweat, thorns, confrontation with the devil, a tree, dust in his burial, all of these things that we see here, Jesus would go through to ultimately gain victory by becoming a curse uh, for us. So in the end, grace wins again. Um, so after these judgments and declarations, we now see a response from Adam and I believe this is the first response of faith we see in the Bible. Um, so you think about this. I mean, I, this is an incredible response of faith, in my opinion, if you think about it. Adam and E, Adam just got all these declarations. Um, I don't know that he's experienced yet what it's going to be like, what this toilsome labor is going to feel like. But he's processed this information, and then he makes this declaration. Um, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he, he gives his wife's name um, a name that means life. He basically affirms God's declarations by faith. He, he just he processed all that has happened. He hears God say that someone would arise from his wife's offspring that would defeat the serpent. He hears that they are not going to die immediately, but that their purpose is to continue in the roles that God created for them. And then he names his wife Eve, okay? So to me, that's a declaration of Adam's faith after going through all of these, these judgments. Um, so then the last thing we see here, well, two, two last points. 
God continues to be a shepherd to his people and making coverings for them because he was preparing them to live lives outside of the garden. They didn't know that yet, but they were going to know that here in just a minute. Um, God's clothing of Adam and Eve with animal skins shows divine improvement on their human effort to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Um, and I wanted to just read this quote real quick. Uh, if I can get it. Uh, from a guy about uh, the importance of, of God making these animal skins uh, for Adam and Eve. It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leave from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger, and he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and that would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. Once we have sinned, we cannot regain permanent peace of conscience save through pain, and this not only pain of our own. The first hint of this was given as soon as conscience was aroused in man. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. The same lesson has been written on millions of consciences since. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves disturbance and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God, and that we cannot rise above its consequences save by the intervention of God himself, by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. For the chief point is that it is God who relieves man's shame. <clears throat> and now that God has done this, what is he doing? He is making it to where whenever Adam and Eve look at each other, they will not be thinking bitter thoughts toward each other as to why life is so hard, but they should be seeing each other as a redeemed person clothed in another's innocence. And the application for us is that we need to see each other as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, as spouses. Um, we need to see each other this way as well um, and just give that grace towards one another by seeing each other in this manner rather than like pointing the finger and what's wrong with you and why did you sin and, and this and that. And then a second application is, is this. Um, When you create a sin mess, do you just stay away from God and are like, I'm going to clean this mess up myself? Um, well, look at what God is doing here. He is graciously, kindly cleaning up their sin mess. That's an application we could take from him, making these clothes for them. And um, I think our tendency is, again, to run and hide guilt and shame. We make a sin mess and we're like, I'm just going to kind of hide over here and try to clean this mess up myself. But that is just not what we should be doing. We need to quick to run to God to, for our sin mess because he is a shepherd. 
he doesn't want us to run and hide. He wants to, he wants to clean up our sin mess, okay? And he will, and he demonstrates that here. And um, so what's the final grace we see? The final grace we see is he drives them out of the garden so that they will not eat of the tree of life and remain in a perpetual state of fallness. Um, to me, this is tough love, um, but it's for Adam and Eve's best interest. Again, this kind of goes with, if God gave me the choice of living this life forever in this fallen world, or, hey, I'll give you 80 years, you can die, and then you can live in paradise for eternity, I would choose 80 years and then eternity in paradise. So, but um, uh, it might get to where mankind, you're getting to that point near death, right? People are always trying to, what the movies are about and stuff, find the, um, not the tree of life, but like the, what is it? Fountain of youth or something, yes, yeah, so that you can kind of keep living and keep living and keep living. But um, God sets limits to keep Adam's sinful heart from getting back in when he sets these two cherubim and a flaming sword there. Um, and it's interesting because this term, he says he drove out the man, um, implies that Adam was giving a little pushback here, maybe uh, uh, to where God was like, no, this is for your good. I need to, you're not going to stay here, eat of that tree of life, and live forever in this fallen state. That is not for your best interest. So I am going to push you out, okay? Um, and that brings me back to my original story, okay? How did the original story end? End. I go away to college. Um, all of that stuff happened that I talked about. Six months later, well, actually, right then at that point where I talked about, God starts drawing me to him. Um, I run into people that are Christians. Uh, they share the gospel with me. I get saved. And um, who knows what would have happened if I was in the Marines or at the Naval Academy or at the Military Academy. But instead, that was the path that God had for me. And the grace that he had for me was that I found him. Um, so have you ever been prevented from getting to that thing you really, really wanted because you thought it would be best for you, but something kept you from it? Well, sometimes God has a way of using forces completely out of your control to shepherd your life. And that's what's happening here is God is telling Adam and Eve, pushing you out of the garden. You really want to stay, but I'm pushing you out. And uh, so let go of that rebellious heart and do not be bitter at God but submit to his goodness and the fact that he is doing what is best for you. And look for God's grace in the circumstances of your lives, even the circumstances that you don't understand, the ones you don't like, even the consequences caused by your sin. Run to him to clean up your sin messes because he is your shepherd. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, there are just so many great um, things um, that we learn about you in, in this true story, Lord. Of We learn who we are. We learn about our heritage. Um, we learn who you are, God. And um, it's just amazing. There's so many things that we 
didn't even get to, maybe we will when we talk about the tabernacle and things of that nature and how you drove out the man in the east and the way back and into the gardens to the east, the tabernacle faced the east and that was the way in and out and all of these parallels, God, that are just amazing uh, that uh, we can just bring out here and <clears throat> the cherubim and how the cherubim guarded the mercy seat and so many other things, God, that we'll get to that just show your unbelievable wisdom. But God, we just thank you today that uh, you, uh, that grace wins. I, and, um, and, and Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand that uh, even this week, that as consequences come into our lives, maybe consequences that we don't like or consequences that, that are even caused by our sin, God, that we would realize that um, you want to show us grace and that we would look for that grace. Um, this even goes along with the verse about um, uh, when various trials come to you, pray for wisdom that you... Uh, I, I think that you're, you're basically asking us to um, uh, be aware of looking at, at finding you in those trials um, and, and um, finding your grace in those trials. And um, so, Lord, I just pray that we would be a people that would um, understand these things and, and be able to... Um, I mean, God, I, I just confess right now, even I think, of, I think of Mondays at work. I think of how hard Mondays can be and things that just appear to go wrong and how I can get bent out of shape over them. But help me and help us all who experience these things again, Lord, to see your grace in these things. Help us to see that nothing just happens by happenstance, um, but all things come into our lives that are filtered through you. And um, help us to be a people that walk in such a way that others recognize that um, we have this confidence about us that we are trusting that you are in control of all things and that even though things may appear to go wrong, we have a quiet confidence about ourselves because we are your people. So God, just help us and give us grace to be that way. In Jesus' name, amen.